Hey, welcome back everyone to <clears throat> another episode of Insanity Forever podcast. Uh, I hope that you are having a good weekend. Um, I hope, you, hope your day is going great. Um, today's episode <clears throat> is quite relevant considering the whole talk around climate climate change and <coughs> you know certain people not believing in it or believe that it's a real thing so we're gonna look back through the history of climate change so <coughs> As always, um, if you would like to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, whichever is easiest for you or whichever you want to do, it's fine, you know. Um, We also have a Patreon, Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash Insanity forever. Um, just putting it putting it out there. Um, so yeah, we're just gonna jump right in. Um, the history of the scientific discovery of climate change began in the early nineteenth century, when ice ages and other natural changes in paleoclimate were first suspected, and the natural natural greenhouse effect first identified. In the late 19th century, scientists first argued that human emissions of greenhouse gases could change the climate. Many other theories of climate change were advanced, involving forces from volcanism to solar variation. Thomas Edison, if if you've never heard of (coughs) Thomas Edison, he, along with another individual called J.P. Morgan were the two men who effectively left Nikola Tessa um, with nothing. So, pioneer of electrical technologies voiced concern for climate change and supports for renewable energy in the, in the 1930s. In the 1960s, the warming effect of carbon dioxide gas became increasingly convincing. Some scientists also pointed out that human activities that generated atmospheric aerosols, e.g. pollution, could have cooling effects 
as well. During the 1970s, <coughs> scientific opinion increasingly favoured the warming viewpoint. By the 1990s, as a result of improve, improving fidelity of computer models and observational work, confer, confirming the Brankovic theory of the ice ages, a consensus position formed. Green, greenhouse gases were deeply involved in most climate changes and human-caused emissions were bringing bringing discernible global warming. Since the 1990s, scientific research on climate change has included multiple disciplines and has expanded. (coughs) Research has expanded our understanding of casual relations links with historic data and ability to model climate change numerically. Research during this period has been summarised in the assessment reports by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Climate change, broadly interpreted, is a significant and lasting change in the statistical distribution of weather patterns over periods ranging from decades to millions of years. It may be a change in average weather conditions or in the distribution of weather around the average conditions, such as more or fewer extreme weather events. Climate change is caused by factors that include oceanic processes such as oceanic circulation, biotic processes e.g. plants, variations in solar radiation received by Earth, plate tectonics and volcanic eruptions, and human-induced alterations of the natural world. The latter effect is currently causing global warming and climate change is often used to describe human-specific impacts. Regional changes, antiquity through 19th century. From ancient times, people suspected that the climate of a region could could change over the course of centuries. For example, Theophrastus, a pupil of Aristotle, told how the draining of marshes marshes had made a particular locality more susceptible to freezing, and speculated that lands became warmer when the clearing of forests exposed them to sunlight. Renaissance and later scholars saw that deforestation, irrigation and grazing had altered the lands around the Mediterranean 
since ancient times. They thought it plausible that these human interventions had affected the local weather. Which, if you <coughs> think about it, everything that we do, whether it's whether it is cultivating land, um, deforesting forests for the water for or whatever we are adding to it. So if we go by the so if we if we go by <coughs> the nineteen thirties till now I'm not very good at math, so I'm just gonna put out a figure. That's between that's probably 50 to 80 years or so, you know. So we have essentially added to the global warming. Not to, men- not to mention pollution of gases that some um, factories still use old methods of gas um, <coughs> which emit pollution but the 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 effect that we that we put out is minuscule compared to corporate businesses where they contribute up to 70% of pollution in any forms. Vitruvius, in the first century BC, wrote about climate in relation to housing architecture and how to choose location, locations for cities. The 18th and 19th century conversion of eastern eastern North America <coughs> from forest to crop, crop lands brought obvious change within a human lifetime. From the early 19th, 19th century, many believed the transformation was altering the region's climate, probably for the better. When farmers in America dubbed sod busters took over the Great Plains, they held that rain follows the plough. Other experts dis- disagreed, <coughs> and some argued that deforestation caused rapid rainwater runoff and flooding, and it could even result in reduced rainfall. European academics convinced of the superiority of their own civilization 
said that the Orientals of the ancient Near East had heedlessly converted their once lush lands into impoverished deserts. Meanwhile, national weather agencies had begun to compile masses of reliable observations of temperature, rainfall and the like. When these figures were analysed, they showed many rises and dips, but no steady long-term change. By the end of the 19th century, scientific opinion had turned decisively against any belief in a human influence on climate, and whatever the regional effects, few imagined that humans could affect the climate of the planet as a whole. Paleoclimate change and theories of its causes. Erratics, boulders deposited by glaciers, far from any existing glaciers, led (coughs) geologists to the conclusion that climate had changed in the past. From the mid-17th century, naturalists attempted to reconcile mechanical philosophy with theology. Initially, within a biblical timescale, by the late 18th century, there was increasing acceptance of prehistoric epochs. Geologists found evidence of a succession of geological ages with changes in climate. There were various competing theories about these changes. Buffon proposed that the Earth had begun as an, as an incandescent globe and was very gradually cooling. James Hutton, whose ideas of cyclic change over huge, huge periods of time were later dubbed uniformitarianism was among those who found signs of past glacial activity in places too warm. For glaciers in modern times, <coughs> in 1815, Jean-Pierre described described for the first time how glaciers might be responsible for the giant boulders seen in alpine valleys as he hiked in the val- in the Val de Bain. He noticed giant granite rocks that were scattered around the narrow valley. He knew that it would take an exceptional force to move such large rocks. He also noticed how glaciers left stripes on the land and concluded concluded that it was the ice that had carried the boulders down into the valley. His idea was initially met with disbelief. Jean de Sopentier wrote, I found his hypothesis 
so extraordinary and even so extravagant that I considered it as not worth examining or even considering. Despite Sarpentier's initial rejection, Perodin eventually convinced Ignaz Venets that it might be worth studying. <coughs> Venets convinced Sarpentier, who in turn convinced the influential scientist Louis Agassiz that the glacial theory had merits. Agassiz developed a theory of what he termed Ice Age, ice age when glaciers covered Europe and much of North America in 1837. Agassiz was the first to scientifically propose that the Earth had been subject to a past ice age. So he so he proposed and again this was in eighteen thirty seven he proposed that <coughs> there wasn't just one ice age he's proposing he's proposing that we had two but we only know of the one which I which it's kind of interesting if you think about it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> William Buckland had been a leading pro- proponent in Britain of flood geology, later dubbed catastrophism, which account- accounted for erratic boulders and other diluvium as well as. As relics of the biblical fo- of the biblical flood, this was strongly opposed by Giles Lyell's version of Hutton's uniformitarianism, and was gradually abandoned by Buckland and other catastrophist geologists. A field trip to the Alps with Aggies in in October 1838 convinced Buckland that features in in Britain had been caused by glaciation glaciation and both he and Lyle strongly supported the Ice Age theory which became widely accepted by the 1870s. So this theory that he was he was proposing became widely accepted by the 1870s. So <clears throat> so they must so you know they already knew of this and they obviously tried to establish what they could do. Or how to try and stop it or prevent it. (coughs) 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 Excuse me. Joseph Fourier, before the concept of Ice Age, 
was proposed. Joseph Fourier in 1824 reasoned on the basis of physics <coughs> that <coughs> that Earth's atmosphere kept kept the planet warmer than would be the case in a vacuum. <coughs> Fourier recognised that the atmosphere transmitted visibly, visible light waves efficiently to the Earth's surface. The Earth then absorbed visible light and emitted infrared radiation in response. But the atmosphere did not transmit infrared efficiently, which therefore increased surface temperatures. He also suspected that human activities could influence climate. <coughs> Although he focused primarily on land use changes, in an 1827 paper, Fourier stated the establishment and progress of human societies, the action of natural forces can notably change and in vast regions. The state of the surface, the, dis- the distribution of water, and the great movements of the air, such effects are able to make to vary in the course of many centuries. The average degree of heat, because the an- analytical expressions contain coefficients, relating to the state of the surface, and which greatly influence the temperature. The physicist Claude Pierre proposed in 1838 that water, vapour and carbon dioxide might trap infrared and warm the the atmosphere but there was still no experimental evidence of these gases absorbing heat from thermal radiation. The warming effects of visible light on different gases were examined in 1856 by Eunice Newton Foote, who described her experiments using glass tubes exposed to sunlight The warming effect of the sun was greater for compressed air than for an evacuated tube, (coughs) and greater for moist air than dry air. Thirdly, the highest effect of the sun's rays I have found to be in carbonic acid gas, carbon dioxide. She continued, an atmosphere of that gas would give to our Earth a high temperature, and if, as some suppose, at one period of its history, the air had mixed with it a larger proportion than at present, an increased temperature from its own action, as well as from increased rates, must have necessarily resulted. Her work was presented by Professor 
Joseph Henry at the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in August 1856 and described as a brief note written by then journalist David Ames Wells. Her paper was published later that year in the American Journal of Science and Arts. John Tyndall took Fourier's work one step further in 1859 when he investigated the absorption of infrared radiation in different gases. He found that water vapour, hydrocarbon-like methane and carbon dioxide strongly block the radiation. Some scientists suggest suggested that ice age and other great climate changes were due to changes in the amount of gases emitted in volcanism. But that was only one of many possible possible causes. Another obviously possibility was solar variation. Shifts in ocean currents also might explain many climate changes for changes over a million of years. The raising and lowering of mountain ranges would change patterns of both winds and ocean currents. <clears throat> or perhaps the climate of a continent had not changed at all, but it, but it had grown warmer or cooler because of polar Polar wonder, the North Pole shifting, shifting to where the equator had been, or the like. There were dozens of theories. For example, in the mid 19th century, James Crowell published calculations of how the gravitational poles of the Sun, Moon, planets. <coughs> subtly affect the Earth's motion and orientation, the inclination of the Earth's axis and the the shape of its orbit around the Sun oscillates gently in cycles, lasting tens of thousands of years. During some periods, the Northern Hemisphere would get slightly less sunlight during the winter. Than it. Excuse me, sorry about that. Than it would get during other centuries. Snow would accumulate, reflecting sunlight and leading to a self sustaining ice age. Most scientists, however, found Crowell's ideas. And very other and every other theory of climate change unconvincing. In eighteen seventy six, Peter Kropotkin wrote about his observations that since the Industrial Revolution, Siberian glaciers were melting first. Calculations of greenhouse effect, eighteen ninety six. 
1896, S. Franz Arrhenius calculated the effect of a doubling atmospheric carbon dioxide to be an increase in surface temperatures of 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. T.C. Chamberlain By the late 1890s, Samuel Pierpont Langley, along with Frank W. Berry, had attempted to determine the surface temperature of the moon by measuring infrared radiation, leaving the moon reaching the Earth. Reaching the, Earth. the angle of the moon in the sky when a scientist took a measurement determined how much CO2 and water vapour the moon's radiation had to pass through to reach the Earth's surface. Resulting in weaker measurements when the moon was low in the sky. When the moon was low in the sky, this result was unsurprising given that scientists had known about infrared radiation absorption for decades. In 1896, Savant Arrhenius used Langley's observations of increased infrared absorption where moon rays pass through the atmosphere at a low angle, encountering more carbon dioxide. To estimate an, an atmospheric cooling effect from a future decrease of CO2, he realised that the cooler atmosphere would hold less water vapour, another greenhouse gas, and calculated the additional cooling effect. He also realised the cooling would increase, increase snow and ice cover at high latitudes, making the planet reflect more sunlight and thus further cool down. As James Cole had hypothesised, <coughs> overall, Arrhenius calculated that cutting CO2 in half would suffice to produce an ice age. He further calculated that a doubling of atmospheric CO2 would give a total warming of 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. Further, Arrhenius colleague Arvid Hugburn, who was quoted in length in Arrhenius' 1896 study on the influence of carbonic acid in the air upon the temperature of the Earth, had been attempting to, quant- to quantify natural sources of emissions of CO2 for purposes of Understanding the global carbon cycle, Hugburn found that estimated carbon production from industrial sources in the 1890s, mainly coal, mainly mainly coal burning, was comparable with the natural sources. Arrhenius saw that this human emissions of carbon would eventually lead to warming. However, because of the relatively low rates of CO2 production, 
Paul Jackson in 1896, Arrhenius thought the warming would take thousands of years, and he expected it would be beneficial to humanity. In 1899, Thomas Trowder Chamberlain developed at length the idea that changes in climate could result from change from changes in the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Chamberlain wrote in his 1899 book an attempt to frame a working hypothesis of the cause of glacial periods on an atmospheric basis. Previous advocacy of an atmospheric hypothesis, the general doctrine that the glacial periods may have been due to a change in the atmospheric content of carbon dioxide is not new. It was urged by Tyndall a half a century ago and has been urged by others since. Recently, it has been very effectively advocated by Dr. Arrhenius, who has taken a great step in in advance of his predecessors predecessors in in reducing his conclusions to definite quantitative terms deduced from observational data. The functions of carbon dioxide by the investigations of Tyndall, Letcher and Pretner, Keller, Rutgen and Herhos, Arrhenius, it has been shown that the carbon dioxide and water vapour of the atmosphere have remarkable power of, abs- of absorbing and temporarily retaining heat rays. Heat rays. While the oxygen, nitrogen and argon of the atmosphere possesses this power in a feeble degree only, <coughs> it follows that the effect of the carbon dioxide and water vapour is to blanket the earth with a thermally absorbent envelope. The general results assignable to a greatly increased or greatly reduced quantity of atmospheric carbon dioxide and water may be summarised as follows. An increase by causing a larger absorption of the sun's radiant energy raises raises the average temperature while a reduction lowers it. The estimate of Dr. Arrhenius, based upon an elaborate mathematical discussion of the observations of Professor Langley, is that an increase of the carbon dioxide to the amount of two or three times the present content would elevate the average temperature eight or nine degrees and would bring on a mild climate. Analogous to that which which prevailed in the middle tertiary age. On the other hand, a reduction of the quantity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to an amount ranging from from 55 to 62 percent of the present content would reduce the average temperature four or five degrees centigrade centigrade, which would bring on a glaciation comparable to that of 
the Pleistocene, Pleistocene period. A second effect of increase and decrease in the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide is the equalization on the one hand of surface temperatures or their differentiation differentiation on the on the other. The temperature of the surface of the earth varies with latitude, altitude, the distribution of land and water, day and night, the seasons and some other elements that may here that may here be neglected. It it is postulated that an increase in the thermal absorption of the atmosphere equalizes the temperature and tends to eliminate the variations attendant on these contingencies contingencies. <coughs> Conversely, a reduction of thermal atmospheric absorption tends to intensify all of these variations. A secondary effect of intensification of differences of temperature is an increase of atmospheric movement in the effort to restore equilibrium. Increased atmospheric movements, which are necessarily convectional, carry the warmer air to the surface of the atmosphere and facilitate the discharge of the heat and thus intensify the primary effect. In the case of the outgoing rays, which are absorbed in much larger proportions than the incoming rays, because they are more largely long, wave rays, the tables of Arrhenius show that the absorption is augmented by increase of carbon acid in greater proportions in high latitudes than in low. For example, the, the increase of temperature for three times the percent content of carbonic acid is 21.5% greater between 60 and 70 north latitude than at the equator. It now becomes necessary to assign agencies capable of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at a rate sufficiently above the normal rate of supply at certain times to to produce glaciation and on the other hand capable of restoring it to to the atmosphere at certain other times in sufficient amounts to produce mild climate. When the, when the temperature is rising after a glacial episode, <coughs> dissociation is promoted and the ocean gives forth its carbon dioxide at an increased rate and thereby assists in, in accelerating the amelioration of climate. A study of the life of the geological periods seems to indicate that there were very notable fluctuations in the total mass of living matter 
<coughs> to be sure there was a reciprocal, a reciprocal relation between the life of the land and that of the sea, so that when the latter was ex- was extended upon the continental platforms and greatly augmented, the former was contracted, but notwithstanding this, it seems clear that the sum of life activity <coughs> fluctuated notably during the ages. <coughs> it is believed that on the whole it was greatest at the periods of sea extension and mild climates, and least at the times of disruption and climatic intensification. This factor then acted antithetically to the carbonic acid freeing previously noted, and so far as it went, tended to offset its effects. In periods of sea extension and of land reduction, base level periods in particular, the habitat of shallow water line secreting life is concurrently extended, giving to the agencies that set carbon dioxide free, free accelerated activity which is further aided by the consequent rising temperature which reduces the absorptive power of the ocean and increases dissociation. At the same time, the area of the land being diminished, a low consumption of carbon dioxide both in original decomposition of the silicates and (coughs) and in the solution of the limestone and dynamites of things, (coughs) thus the reciprocating agencies again conjoin, but now to increase the carbon dioxide of the air. These are the great and essential factors. They are modified by several subordinate agencies already mentioned, but the quantitative effect of these is thought to be quite insufficient. To prevent very notable fluctuations in the atmospheric constitution, as a result, it is postulated that geological history has been accentuated accentuated by an alternation of climatic episodes, embracing, on the one hand, periods of mild, equable, moist climate, nearly uniform for the whole globe, and on the other periods when there were extremes of aridity and precipitation and of heat and cold. These last denoted by deposits of salt and gypsum of sub-area conglomerates of red sandstone and shales (coughs) of arcose deposits and occasionally by glaciation in low latitudes. The term greenhouse effect (coughs) 
<coughs> for this warming was introduced by John Henry Ponting. In 1909, in a commentary discussing the effect of the atmosphere on the temperature of the Earth and Mars, paleoclimates and sunspots early 1900s to 1950s. Arrhenius' calculations were disputed and subsumed into a large debate over whether atmospheric changes had caused the Ice Age. Experimental attempts to measure infrared absorption in the laboratory seemed to show show little difference resulted from increasing CO2 levels and also found significant overlap between absorption by CO2 and and absorption by water vapour, all of which suggested that increasing carbon dioxide emissions would have little climatic effect. These early experiments were later found to be insufficiently accurate. Given the instrumentation of the time, many scientists also thought that the oceans would quickly absorb any excess carbon dioxide. Other theories of the causes of climate change fared no better. The principal advances were in observational paleoclimatology, as scientists in various fields of geology worked out methods to reveal ancient climates. <coughs> Wilmot H. Bradley found that annual valves of clay laid down in the lake, in the lake beds showed climate cycles. Andrew Ellicott Douglas saw strong indication of climate change in tree rings, noting that the rings were thinner in dry years, he reported climate effects from solar variations, particularly in connection with the 17th century death dearth of sun, sunspots <coughs> the Mounder Minimum, noticed previously by William Herschel and others. Other scientists, however, found good, good reason to doubt that tree rings could reveal anything beyond random regional variations. The value of tree rings for climate study was not solidly established until the 1960s. Through the 1930s, the most persistent advocate of a solar climate connection was astrophysicist Charles Greeley Abbott. By the early 1920s, he said he had concluded that the solar constant (coughs) was misnamed. His observations showed large variations which he connected with sunspots. passing across the face of the sun. He and a few others pursued the topic into the 1960s, convinced that sunspot variations were a main cause of climate change. The scientists 
were sceptical. Nevertheless, attempts to connect the solar cycle with climate cycles were popular in the 1920s and 1930s. Respected scientists announced correlations that they insisted were reliable enough to make predictions. Sooner or later, every prediction failed and the subject fell into disrepute. Meanwhile, Milutin Milankovic, building on James Quall's theory, improved the, the tedious calculations of the varying distances and angles of the sun's radiation as the sun and moon gradually perturbed the Earth's orbit. Some observations of Varf's layer seen in the mud covering the bottom of lakes matched the, predict- the prediction of a Milankovic cycle lasting about 21,000 years. <clears throat> However, most geologists dismissed the astronomical theory for they could not fit Milankovic's timing to the accepted sequence, which had only four ice ages, <coughs> all of them much longer than 21,000 years. In 1938, Guy Stewart Callender attempted to revive Arrhenius's greenhouse effect theory. Callender presented evidence that both temperature and the CO2 level in the atmosphere (coughs) had been rising over the past half century, and he argued that newer spectroscopic measurements showed that the gas was effective in absorbing infrared in the atmosphere. Nevertheless, most scientific opinion continued to dispute or ignore the theory. Increasing concerns, 1950s to 1960s. Charles Charles Killing, receiving the National Medal of Science from George W. Bush in 2001, Better spectrography in the 1950s showed, 1950s showed that CO2 and water vapour absorption lines did not overlap completely. Climatologists also realised that little water vapour was present in the upper atmosphere. Both developments showed that the CO2 greenhouse effect would not be overwhelmed by water vapour. In 1955, Hans Suess carbon-14 isotope analysis showed that CO2 released from fossil fuels was not immediately absorbed by the ocean. In 1957, better understanding of ocean chemistry led Roger Revelle to a realisation that the ocean surface layer had a limited ability to absorb carbon dioxide.
also predict, predicting the rising levels of CO2 and later being proven by Charles David Keeling by the late 1950s. More scientists were arguing that carbon dioxide emissions could be a problem, with some projecting in 1959 that CO2 would rise 25% by the year 2000, with potentially radical effects on climate. In 1960s, Charles David Keeling demonstrated that the level of CO2 in the atmosphere was in fact rising. Concern mounted year by year along with the rise of the Keeling curve of atmospheric CO2. Another clue to the nature of climate change came climate change came in the mid 1960s. <coughs> From anal- analysis of deep sea cores by Cesar Emiliani and analysis of ancient corals by Rodis Broker and collaborators, rather, rather than for long ice ages, they found a large number of shorter ones in a regular sequence. It appeared that the timing of ice ages was set by the small orbital shifts of the Melancovitch cycles. While the matter remained controversial, some began to suggest that the climate system is sensitive to small changes to smaller changes and can readily be flipped from a stable state into a different one. Scientists, meanwhile, began using computers to develop more sophisticated versions of Arrhenius' calculations in 1967. Taking advantage of the ability of digital computers, digital computers to inter- integrate absorption curves numerically, Securio Manerbi and Richard Weatherwald made the first detailed calculation of the greenhouse effect, incorporating conve- convection, the, mani- the manab weatherworld one-dimensional radi- radiative convective model, <coughs> they found that in the absence of unknown feedbacks, such as changes in clouds, a doubling of carbon dioxide from the current level, would result in approximately 2 degrees centigrade increase in global temperature. By the 1960s, aerosol pollution, smog, had become a serious local problem in many cities and some scientists began to consider whether whether the cooling effects of particulate pollution could affect global temperatures. Scientists were unsure whether the cooling effect of a particulate pollution or warming effect of greenhouse gases, gas emissions, would predominate, but regardless began to suspect that human emissions could be disruptive to climate in the 21st century, if not sooner. In his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Paul R. Ehrlich wrote, the greenhouse effect is being enhanced now by the greatly increased level of carbon dioxide. 
This is being countered by low-level clouds generated by contrails, dust and other contaminants. At the moment, we cannot predict what the overall climatic results will be of our using the atmosphere as a garbage dump. In 1965, the Landmark Report, Restoring the Quality of Our Environment by U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson's Science Advisory Committee, warned of the harmful effects of fossil fuel emissions. (coughs) Warned of the harmful effects of fossil fuel emissions. The part that remains in the atmosphere may have a significant effect on climate. Carbon dioxide is nearly transparent to visible light, but it but it but it is a strong absorber and back radiator of infrared radiation, particularly in the wavelengths from twelve to eighteen microns. Consequently, an increase of atmospheric carbon dioxide could act much like the grass in a greenhouse to raise the temperature of the lower air. A 1968 study by the Stanford Research Institute for the American Petroleum Institute noted if the Earth's temperature increases significantly a number of events might be expected to occur including the melting of the Antarctic ice cap a rise in sea levels warming of the oceans and an increase in photosynthesis. Revell makes the point that man is now engaged in a vast geophysical experiment with his environment, the Earth. (coughs) Significant temperature changes are almost certain to occur by the year 2000, and these could bring about climatic changes. In 1969, NATO was the first candidate to deal with climate change on an international level. It was it was planned then to establish a hub of research and initiatives of the organization in the civil area dealing with environmental topics. <coughs> As acid rain and the greenhouse effect the suggestion of U.S. President Richard Nixon was not very successful. With the administration of German Chancellor Kurt Jorg Kassinger, but the topics and the preparation work done on the NATO proposal by the German authorities gained international momentum. E.g. The Stockholm United Nations Conference on the Human Environment, 1970, as the government of Willy Brandt started to apply them on the civil sphere instead, 
Also, in 1969, Mikhail Budiko published a theory on the ice albedo feedback, a foundational element of what is today known as Arctic amplification. The same year, a similar model was published by William D. Sellers. Both studies attracted, attracted significant attention, since they hinted at the possibility for a one-way positive feedback within the global global climate system. Scientists increasingly predict warming 1970s <coughs> mean, tem- mean temperature anomalies during the period 1965 to 1975, so 10 years, or 10 or 11 years, with respect to the average temperature from 1937 to 1946, this dataset was not available at the time. In the early 1970s, evidence that aerosols were increasing worldwide encouraged Reed, Bryson and some others to warn of the possibility of severe cooling. Meanwhile, the evidence that the timing of Ice Age was set by by predictable orbital cycles, suggested that the climate would gradually cool over thousands of years for the century ahead. However, a survey of the the scientific literature from 1965 to 1979 found seven articles predicting cooling and 44 predicting warming. Many other articles on climate made no no prediction. The warming articles were cited much more often in subsequent scientific literature. Several scientific panels from this time period concluded that more research was needed to to determine whether warming or cooling was likely, indicating that the trend in the scientific literature had not yet become a consensus. John Sawyer published the study Man-Made Carbon Dioxide and the Greenhouse Effect in 1972. He summarised the knowledge of the science at the time, the anthropogenic attribution of the carbon dioxide greenhouse gas, distribution and exponential rise, findings which still hold today. Additionally, he accurately predicted the rate of global warming for the period 1972 and 2000. The increase of 25% of CO2 expected by the end of the century therefore corresponds to an increase of 0.6 in the world temperature, an amount somewhat greater than the climatic variation of recent centuries. John Sawyer, 1972 The mainstream news media at the time exaggerated the warnings of the man, of the minority who expected imminent cooling, for example. In 1975, Newsweek magazine published a story that warned of ominous signs that the Earth's weather patterns have begun to change. The article continued by stating that evidence of global cooling <clears throat> was so strong that 
meteorologists were having a hard time keeping up with it. On October 23rd, 2006, Newsweek issued an update stating that it had been spectacularly wrong about the near-term future. In the first two reports for the Club of Rome in 1972 and 1974, the anthropogenic climate changes by CO2 increased as well as by raised heat were mentioned. About the latter, John Hodgman wrote in a study cited in the first in the first report <coughs> that global thermal pollution is hardly our most immediate environmental threat. It could prove to be the most inexorable, however, if we are fortunate enough to evade all the rest simple global scale estimates that recently have been actualized and confirmed by more refined model calculations, some noticeable contributions from waste heat to global warming after the year 2100. If its growth rates are not strongly reduced below the average 2% PA, which occurred since 1973, evidence for warming accumulated by 1975, Manabe and World had developed a three-dimensional global climate model that gave a roughly accurate representation of the current climate, doubling CO2 in the model's atmosphere gave a roughly 2% rise in global temperature. Several kinds of computer models gave similar results in what it was impossible to make a model that gave something resembling the actual climate and not have the temperature rise when the CO2 concentration was increased. <coughs> In a separate development, an, ana- a- an analysis of deep sea cores published in 1976 by Nicholas Sackleton and colleagues showed that the dominating influence on Ice Age timing came from a 100,000-year Mironkovitz orbital change. This was unexpected, since the change in the sunlight in that cycle was was slight. The result emphasised that the climate system is driven by feedbacks and thus is strongly susceptible to small changes in conditions. The 1979 World Climate Change, World Climate Conference, to 23rd February of the World Meteorological Organization concluded, it appears plausible that an increased amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can contribute can contribute to a gradual warming of the lower atmosphere, especially at higher latitudes. It is possible that some effects on a regional and global scale may be detectable before the end of this century and become significant before the middle of the next century.
James Hansen during his 1988 testimony to Congress, which alerted the public to the dangers of global warming by the early 1980s. The slight cooling trend from 1945 through to through to 1975 had stopped. Aerosol pollution had decreased in many areas due to environmental legislation and changes in fuel use. In fuel use, and it became clear that the cooling effect from aerosols was not going to increase substantially while carbon dioxide levels were progressively increasing. Hansen and others published the 1981 study Climate Impacts of Increasing Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide and noted it is shown that the anthropogenic carbon dioxide warming should emerge from the noise level of natural climate variability. By the end of the century, and there is a high probability of warming in the 1980s, potential effects on climate in the 21st century include <coughs> the, creation, the creation of drought-prone regions in North America and Central Asia as part of a shifting of climatic zones, erosion of the West Antarctic ice sheet with a consequent consequent worldwide rise in sea level and opening of the fabled Northwest Passage. In 1982, Greenland ice cores drilled by Hans Usker, William Dansgaard and collaborators revealed dramatic temperature oscillations in the space of a century in the, in the distant past. <coughs> The most prominent of the changes in their record corresponded to the violent younger Dryas climate oscillation seen in the shifts in the types of pollen of pollen in lake beds all over Europe. Evidently drastic climate changes were possible within a within a human lifetime. In nineteen seventy three James Lovelock speculated that chlorofluorocarbons, that chlorofluorocarbons, could have a global warming effect. In 1975, V. Raman, v. Ramanathan found that CFC molecule could be 10,000 times more effective in absorbing infrared radiation than a carbon dioxide molecule, making the CFCs potentially important despite their very low concentrations in the atmosphere. <clears throat> While most early work on CFCs focused on their role in ozone depletion, by 1985, Ramanathan and others showed that CFCs together with methane and other trace gases could have nearly as important a climate effect as increases in CO2. In other words, global warming would arrive twice as fast as had been expected. In 1985, a joint UNEP-WMO-ICSU conference 
on the assessment of the role of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in climate variations and associated impacts, concluded that greenhouse gases are expected to cause significant warming in the next century and that some warming is inevitable. Meanwhile, ice cores drilled by a Franco-Soviet team at the Vostok Station in in Antarctica showed that CO2 and temperature had gone up and down together in a ride swings through past ice ages. This confirmed the CO2 temperature relationship in a manner entirely independent of computer climate models. Entirely independent of computer climate models, strongly reinforcing the emerging scientific consensus, the findings also pointed to powerful biological and geochemical feedbacks. In June 1988, James E. Hansen made one of the first assessments that a human-caused warming had already measurably affected global climate. Shortly after a world conference on on the changing atmosphere, (coughs) implications for global security gathered hundreds of scientists and others in Toronto, They concluded that the changes in the atmosphere due to human pollution represents a major threat to international security and are already having harmful consequences over many parts of the globe. (coughs) And declared that by 2005 the world would be well advised be well advised to push its emissions some 20% below the 1988 level. The 1980s saw important breakthroughs with regard to global environmental challenges. Ozone depletion was mitigated by the Vienna Convention in Austria and the Montreal and the Montreal Protocol. Acid rain was mainly re- mainly regulated on national and regional levels. Twenty fifteen, warmest global year on record since eighteen eighty. In 1988, the WMO established the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change with the support of the UNEP. The IPCC continues its work through the present day and issues a series of assessment reports and supplemental reports that describe the state of scientific understanding at the time. Each report is prepared. Scientific developments during this period are summarised about once every five to six years in the IPCC assessment reports, which were published in 1990. (coughs) First assessment report, 1995. The third one was in 2001. The fourth was in 2007. And 
2013-2014. Since the 1990s, research on climate change has expanded and grown, linking many fields such as atmospheric sciences, numerical modelling, behavioural sciences, geology and economics or security, discovery of other climate changing factors. Methane in 1859, John Tyndall determined that coal gas, a mix of methane and other gases, strongly absorbed infrared radiation. Methane was subsequently detected in the atmosphere in 1948, and in the 1980s, scientists realised that that human emissions were having a a substantial impact. Chlorofluorocarbon. In 1973, British scientist James Lovelock speculated that chlorofluorocarbon Fluorocarbons could have a global warming effect. In 1975, V. Ramanathan found that a CFC molecule could be 10,000 times more effective in absorbing infrared radiation than a carbon dioxide molecule, making CFCs potentially important. Despite their low concentrations in the atmosphere, while most early work on CFCs focused on their role in ozone depletion. By 1985, scientists had concluded that CFCs, together with methane and other trace gases, could have nearly as important a climate effect as increases in CO2. So, <coughs> put simply, um, our <coughs> planet has been having climate climate change problems since the eighteen thirties. So you know. Uh, <coughs> The reason, the reason why I chose that as today's topic was because, you know, it's important. It's an important conversation right now, you know. And not a lot of people know the, the history and it, right? But that would be it for today. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, I, ho- I hope you have learned something along with me. You know, this is um, you know, every topic we do, it's we are learning together. Um, even even if you may have heard of this somewhere else, you're at least getting my perspective on things. That's gonna obviously obviously differ from other people, but yeah, that will be it. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, wherever you are. Uh, as always, thank you, thank you for listening, and I will see you in, see you in the next episode.
Bye, everyone.